If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before, because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products. Like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Hello and welcome to Great Reputations, our series exploring the divisive legacies of some of history's biggest names. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Indian politician and activist Mahatma Gandhi. Born in 1869 to a Hindu family in what was then British India, he trained as a lawyer in London before returning to India and then moving to South Africa. He remained in that country for two decades, where he became interested in civil rights. Upon moving back to India in 1915, he supported working people in their struggles against discrimination and taxation and became leader of the political party, the Indian National Congress, in 1921. Key anti-colonial efforts in this period included his dandy salt march against British taxation in 1930 and the launch of the Quit India Movement in 1942, at the height of the Second World War. In 1939, just before the war began, and again in 1940, Gandhi wrote letters to Hitler, attempting to avert and then protesting against the conflict. Neither reached the German leader. After the war, British India was partitioned into two dominions, India and Pakistan, sparking mass displacement and religious violence. A feeling among some Hindu nationalists that Gandhi had been too supportive of Muslims and of Pakistan grew during these years and he was assassinated by nationalist Naturam Godza on 30th of January 1948. Hi, I'm, I'm Vikram Vasana. I'm a lecturer in political theory at the University of Leicester, but I, I work mostly on the history of political thought. I'm Jad Adams. Uh, I've written a number of political biographies and uh, the one in, in question now is Gandhi, Naked Ambition. 
So before we go any further, I thought we should start by just exploring briefly some of the major aspects that you think we should talk about, some of the more contested or controversial aspects of, of this story, I suppose. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I think you can divide them into to two sort of categories. There are events in Gandhi's life which which have generated a lot of kind of frenzied debate about whether they were moral, acceptable, in fitting with our kind of contemporary views about things. So some of those are around, and I'm sure we'll talk about how he shared a bed with two young ladies to, to prove a certain aspect of his philosophy and whether that was appropriate or not. Issues around caste, you know, is he a believer in the caste system, which most contemporary figures in India today would say is something we need to move away from. And then also debates around sort of, you know, how effective a leader he was, whether he's a religious thinker or a political thinker or both. Is he just an Indian thinker? Is he a global thinker? And also how representative he is, I guess, to some extent of, of nationalism, because that's a big thing to be representative of. And he certainly had many detractors in his own time as, as well as now. So uh, I would say those are the kind of broad debates around him. I think I'm most interested in his contribution to partition and his responsibility for partition, if indeed we consider that he was responsible for it, because it was one of the, the great disasters of the 20th century. Also, I'm interested in the way that his philosophy, his way of life, his cult leader status has influenced people and whether he have, has actually had the influence that he really wanted to change people's lives in, in their diet, their sexual relationships and, of course, nonviolent protest. So a lot of really interesting stuff there, and we'll get into it over the next 45 minutes or so. First of all, I thought we should start by talking about the early experiences, I suppose, that shaped his political outlook and his life, and if there's any episodes early in his life that you think is particularly important. I think certainly from when he's a, a young man, a teenager, there's there's several episodes that often get mentioned in, in sort of historical biographies of him. One is the, the relationship he has with his father and, and sex. So, I mean, when his father is is dying, it's, it's Hindu tradition that you ought to be, the male children should be at the, the father's bedside when that's happening. He is caught going off with his then arranged married bride to have sex, and his father then dies in the meantime. So there, there's a lot of personal guilt that, that goes through his entire life from that period. And I'm sure we'll get on to how this might have affected his somewhat eccentric views about, about sex and sexuality. I think other things from a, a political philosophy point of view is his family background is Gujarati, it's Hindu, but it's particularly from the Pranami sect on his mother's side, which are devotees of Krishna. And there's lots of recent work which which shows just how central the Bhagavad Gita, the episode between Krishna and Arjuna in that, is to Gandhi's sort of wider political philosophy about duty, self-sacrifice, and so on. So I think that aspect of his kind of village cultural inheritance is a big part of his life that he carried forward. He married young. He was only 13. And that, that wasn't at all unusual in, in India at the time. But he was always angry about it later on, that his parents had forced him into this these acts of carnal desire when he said he was too young to, to be able to resist, didn't have the self-control, also couldn't have made the spiritual decision, which he so much wanted to do later, to withhold himself from sexual activity. So that was one thing. There was a certain amount of resentment to, to, towards his family. And, and, and he was always even aggressive about marriages. Hindu marriages are a complete waste of money. You get all these people together, you give them too much food, you have to throw it away, and there's, the, the, there's waste. And so, so, so some of the, the ordinary aspects of family life that we would consider to be something which was warm and, and encouraging and embracing, he really resented. 
there's a whole mix of sort of personal and political stuff there already. You mentioned South Africa there. What, when when did he go to South Africa? What happened, and why that was why was that important? So he goes in the the late nineteenth century as a trained lawyer. I mean, that's that's what he's there to do. He um, ends up getting employed by a, an Indian commercial firm there to to do their kind of litigation for them. And of course, there's that famous experience where he's he's taking a train in South Africa. He's thrown off it for being non-white and holding a first-class ticket. And then he he spends the night at Pietsmaritzburg Station kind of thinking about why this has happened in an empire which he, you know, he may have had some critical thoughts about it, but which he he fundamentally saw at that point as a force for kind of good in the world. You know, there are, there are subsequent friends of his who said at that point he thought of himself as a British subject first, then an Indian and so on and so forth. So I think this is, this is a kind of turning point where he starts to think, well, why ought this to have happened to a subject of the empire implicitly we're supposed to be treated equally and so on. And he kind of has this moment, well, am I going to just wait for the next train and get on it? Or am I going to make a point of, of you know, why has this happened and something needs to change. Off the back of that, he gets involved in lots of you know, agitations against what are really quite draconian measures against Indians in South Africa, which look very strange to an Indian who's come from India because they're not present there. So that's things like pass laws. There's an increasing movement to move middle-class Indian businesses out of city centres into uh, what we now call townships because they're seen as threatening white businesses and so on. And this, he thinks, is a, a you know an incredible aff- offence to a civilization that he considers is ancient and proud. And, and, and the British have, have often said is ancient and proud and so on and so on. So he sees it as a, as a form of hypocrisy. There is that then unfortunate element that we know about Gandhi where he says, well, look, we're not like the African population. Why ought you to treat us like the African population? Implicitly making that racial hierarchy kind of comparison, which I have to say, I think eventually he moves away from that that logic of thinking. But the, the Boer War, in my view, t- changes his philosophy quite quite a lot. And we'll, we might come on to that in a sec. When he's completed his studies, he goes back to India and he's an absolutely dreadful lawyer. I mean, he, he, he knows an awful lot about British law, and he's studied Roman law too, which is the, the sort of academic apprenticeship that, that you get in, at, the, at the temples. But he doesn't know anything about Indian courts or how to plead. And his first appearance in an Indian court is just an embarrassment. He stands... He can't bring himself to speak. He sits down again. He returns the fee to the person who gave him the work. He's just dreadful. And so when he sees the opportunity being advertised to someone needed in South Africa, want an Indian lawyer in South Africa to to settle a, a particularly important dispute, it's really Gandhi's last chance at his profession. It's, I failed here let's try somewhere else. And of course, it is South Africa, which really is the making of Gandhi. So we've we've talked about why he gets involved in South African politics, his his, uh, experience at P.S. Maritzburg. And then there are draconian laws in South Africa at the time that that are penalizing Indians, and it must be said Chinese as well, compared to how they're treated in their sort of home regions. I think the Boer War is really interesting for him because you, you tend to find in his later writings, actually, you find it in Hind Swaraj, he's kind of magnum opus in 1909, but then certainly when he talks about it in the 20s and 30s, that this figure of the soldier becomes quite important for him as a figure of courage, as someone who's really adept at self-sacrifice, who's capable of it, who's self-disciplined, which is, of course, all the characteristics that someone involved in civil disobedience as, as becomes his kind of strategy in the 20s and 30s needs. And so his getting involved in the Boer War and and recruiting for the ambulance service and so on is, is his kind of first attempt to understand what the battlefield is like, understand what the soldier's role is like. And in, in some ways, it's quite ironic for the, the, the sort of profit of nonviolence that the battlefield is the place where he kind of starts to work this stuff 
out. And I don't think he has a kind of deeply moralizing kind of prejudicial view of, of violence in the way that often people think he does. I think he thinks that actually it takes a great deal of courage to be a soldier. There's a step beyond that, which is being able to receive violence for a cause and not, not meeting it out. But the worst thing you can be is someone who won't fight at all. So this sense of being a kind of, I think sometimes people think of him as Quakerish pacifist, is, is not really what nonviolence ends up being about. It's something a bit more activist in that sense. And the Boer War is absolutely central and South Africa is absolutely central for, for that, I think. It's very interesting that he actually supports the empire against against the Zulus, Zulus for the yeah. Zulu uprising, then in the Boer War, and 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 then he's 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 recruiting in the First World War. Yes, so in the important absolutely. wars yeah. of, of, of the, 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 the early part of the century, he's, he's, he's absolutely behind the empire yeah. and one has to assume behind the wars. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I think this idea of him being a saint from day one as, as a kind of, you know, messiah type figure who's, who's absolutely against nonviolence is, is just not true. He's like any other political thinker, you know, he's, he's developing his, his views. I mean, I think you're probably right. He's, he's more of a reformer at that stage. He's, he's willing to compromise on a lot more things in South Africa. I think one of the interesting examples is, is when he's going on one of his major non campaigns in South Africa for Indian coolies, Indian workers. There's a range of white labor strikes and mechanic strikes that go on in South Africa. And, and people say to him as a, as a point of strategy, why don't we have kind of a general strike? Why don't you invite these people into the movement? And he, he says, in some sense, it's quite strategically, but I think in some ways also quite idealistically, and this is where the two things sort of meet for him. No, that would be wrong because we set out on this mission with a certain set of demands it would be immoral of us now to shift the demands just because we have a certain advantage. And this is a part of that building that that attitude with the British. Okay, this is a man who maybe we ought to compromise with because actually he's very, very reasonable. But at the same time, I think he views that as, a, as an ethical stance. It's not purely a, a strategic one. So that debate about, you know, is he a political realist or is he an idealist? Actually, in some ways, they work work together quite well. We've got to remember the sort of state that South Africa was at the time. There were two Boer states, two British states and two Boer states. And the Boer states are much more racially hardline. They're moving towards the apartheid state, which was, of course, finalized in the 1950s. But at this time, at the beginning of the 20th century, we've got the Boers with a really hard line that there should not be any kind of race mixing and we today, from a Western 20th century standpoint, think this is dreadful. But actually, Gandhi, coming from a caste background, said exactly that sort of thing. He was supporting exactly that kind of thing. If you're supporting the caste system in, in, in India, you're saying people are born different. They've got to stay different. They've got to marry different. They've got to eat different. They've got to live different. Yes, no, I th and I think this is one of the really, if we're going to label Gandhi, he is a conservative, right? I mean, we'll get on to when we maybe talk about the 30s and 40s. I think he's a radical conservative, if such a thing makes sense in, in some ways. But you're absolutely right in that he thinks arbitrary categories are not necessarily bad. And actually, they give you a certain sense of duty and that your duty is not something you choose in his view. It's something you're born into. And therefore, the caste system makes perfect sense to him. So I think if you're coming with that baggage, if you want, all of a sudden, those sorts of Racial distinctions seem to make a certain degree of sense. I think as we see with caste, he wants to have his cake and eat it and says, oh, well, you shouldn't be mean to people who are from a lower caste and so on. But, you know, from a from a kind of secular 21st century perspective, I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense to, to a lot of people. Certainly doesn't make sense to lots of low caste people in India. And, and as we've seen with Gandhi must fall and things, doesn't make sense to a lot of Africans now either. So the racialized state, as it's supplied to Gandhi with the whites on the top and the blacks on the bottom, with Gandhi trying to gouge a space in the middle 
for the Indians saying, we do accept that you're not going to accept us at your tables, your white tables, but you've got to accept our difference. And actually, that was the way the racialized state was moving so that, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. apartheid South Africa had whites, blacks and coloreds. Yeah, so it had, had, yeah, yeah. had, had that, that separate class and accepted that separate class. And when, when they started moving towards greater democracy, they gave the colors class, um, they gave them the vote, accepting that they were different. No, absolutely. But yeah. when they didn't give and the blacks I, the vote. And I think it's absolutely right to, to criticize him for having that pretty major blind spot in the late 19th, early 20th century. I think by the 30s and 40s, he's, he's sort of developed his view of what politics is. So I think he's still in a very liberal mindset in South Africa where there are interest groups and they're divided by certain racial categories and ethnic categories. And those interest groups have to kind of jostle for position for their their seat at the table, as you say. I mean, I'm sure we'll get on to talking about the 30s and 40s. I think he's, he's sort of fundamentally changes his his kind of approach to what politics is. You know, insofar as he ends up calling you know, the British Parliament a den of prostitutes, it's precisely the type of thinking he's, he's criticizing. So this is that thing about, you know, again, not seeing him as a messiah from day one. He's a kind of highly... His autobiography is called Experiments with Truth. You know, he's he's figuring it out. And the conclusions sometimes are not particularly what I would endorse or, or indeed many people at the time endorsed. But he's still sort of trying to work out what's a radical break from the state of affairs he sees as being kind of problematic in, in lots of ways. By the early 1920s, he's become leader of the Indian National Congress. What sort of style did he have as a political leader, firstly? Really, the the source of his pull, if you want, as a as a kind of cult like figure, is actually that I'm appealing to the masses. So, what I mean by this time, he's he started dressing in the the dotty and the quite sort of you know ascetic style of clothes that we we kind of know him for. There are a series of you know, labor kind of contests that he gets involved in in India, which again then ends up allowing him to transfer that South African fame to something else. So, Champaran's won in the 1910s, then Kedar, both of which involve plantation disputes essentially. And he's seen as a as a peasant leader. Now he's presenting himself as more of a kind of spiritual messianic figure. We have to remember that uh, Hind Swaraj is is published right at the very end of his South African career in 1909. Interestingly, again, you know, the pivot seems to be very extreme for him because I, I absolutely agree that he presents himself as this suited and booted lawyer in South Africa and, and does very well out of it throughout the late 19th and early 20th century. In 1909, lawyers come in for a kicking in Hinsuraj in quite, quite, a, quite a big way. So he seems to have had some sort of awakening about you know, the role of the lawyer, and actually the doctor, interestingly enough, in underpinning what he sees as kind of modern industrial uh, capitalism, the British Empire, and so on. A lot of it's to do with what he sees as, and Faisal Devji at Oxford's work is fantastic on this, as a kind of contractual system, that the lawyer is all about preserving the contractual system of, of industrial liberalism, right? And he thinks that at every level is is immoral because it never involves self-sacrifice. It never involves duty. It's always just this, what can I get out of you? Can I hire a lawyer to kind of adjudicate this for us? He thinks it's uncourageous on a level as well because if you're getting someone to always arbitrate your disputes, you're never really having it out. So a lot of this is kind of what's then driving his involvement in these disputes in, in India when he gets there. I think the interesting thing is the first two really are genuinely labor disputes where he's on the side of the peasant. There's also the mill workers strike in Ahmedabad where he's kind of on the side of sort of he's hedging between the workers and the capitalists. He's actually invited by the mill owners to get involved. And this is where that casting comes back because they're Gujaratis from his background. They're, they're middle caste financiers and so on. And this is why the issue of Gandhi, you know, having his cake and eating it, he, t- he often talks a good talk, but you're running a, a party machine that needs funding, that needs elites that support it and so on. He knows where that, that finance is coming from. So he's very, you know, he's a savvy political operator. He's no fool. And I think he balances those two things very, very well 
well as, as leader of the Congress, the messianic figure when you need him to, to kind of get, you know, the subalterns, the people on the ground to support you, who often see him as this kind of messiah-like figure, you know, who don't necessarily know the nuts and bolts of what he's about, but see him as a reincarnation of a particular saint. People have visions of him when he's not he's not actually there. We know the historical record says he's not there, but sitting by the well, preaching to people. And then this gets out to the village just through oral testimony and, and um, kind of gossip. And that village then, when the next non-cooperation movement rolls around, is, is really in support of him. And he's never been there. So that's the thing, actually, that gets that normal people out. It's not actually, as far as we can tell, them reading about kind of, you know, labor issues and so on. There are, of course, communist movements later on in the 30s and 40s, which kind of end up fusing with Gandhian sentiments, particularly in, in places in, in Madras and so on, that have a kind of communist element and Gandhian element rolled into them. But it's not really him that's doing the the labor activism in, in that sense. So yeah, he's a, he, he knows where the idealism and where the, the strategizing need to kind of meet. And he's, he's very, very good at it. And India needs it because before him, you've got political leaders who are quite happy having sort of constitutional debates in smoke-filled rooms, wearing top hats and tails and so on. But no one's actually got out there to, to mobilize the people. And he knows absolutely how to do that. I think Hinz Swaraj is absolutely central to this because, of course, it was where he set down his beliefs in what he wanted in India, but also what, what he, he hated about modern life. And so he's against pretty much everything, aeroplanes and railway trains and hospitals and, as you say, lawyers. But he's in favor of village life. He, he believes and genuinely believes that there is a kind of beauty in people living a self-sufficient life in a village. One presumes ruled by a benevolent king, ultimately, but it's the, the, the rule is a bit uncertain here. He's really, Gandhi's really interested in people's relationships to, to each other rather than their relationships to a, to a center of power. And that's one of the ways in which he's very different from the other Congress leaders who share this, a similar kind of background to him, but are very often much more secular, as, as Nehru is secular. But what, what happens with, with Gandhi is, and, and the other Congress leaders is that they recognize that they can only get so far with their politicking and with their arguments with the British about this kind of constitution, that kind of constitution, is it going to be a, a, a dominion status or independence and so on? They can only get so far with this chopping about different political ideas. What Gandhi showed them was that this narrow middle class aspiration of independence could become a national aspiration that everyone could feel that they would gain from it and that it would fit in with their own spiritual life. And that's what Gandhi told them. It would, this will make you spiritually stronger when you have independence. People believe the craziest things about what they would get from independence. That wasn't Gandhi giving them false ideas he was presenting independence as something which would enlarge them. However, this really worked very, very well with the Hindu population. Muslims didn't look at it exactly that way. They weren't looking for a Ramaraj. They weren't looking no. for some kind of a, a, a religious expression in, in, in their daily life because as far as they were concerned, they already had it. I mean, I think this is this is the point at which he becomes famous, as you want, in the 1920s, is also the, the sort of high point by the time you get to 1925 of, of Hindu nationalism before today, really. I mean, it's it's there's a huge wave of Hindu nationalist kind of literary work that's getting published in the 20s. There are figures of the Congress who are 
contemplating or actually leaving because they don't think it's Hindu nationalist enough. And this is, of course, putting Muslims on back foot in terms of feeling quite tetchy about what's going on, not least because the Ottoman Empire has been dismembered and, and all this kind of stuff. And Gandhi with the best will in the world. I think, you know, he is into the idea of Hindu-Muslim unity. But if you present yourself as a Hindu holy man, if you use terms like Ram Rajya, there's people who are not going to be able to associate with that type of language. I think what he would say to defend himself if he were here would be that things that he particularly sees in the Indian village, he would say cuts across those re- religious boundaries. So it's very interesting that he almost in a, in a weird kind of way predicts the iPhone when in, in Swaraj he says, look, one day you'll get to the point where you'll be able to press a button and a car will arrive. You'll be able to press a button and your food will be delivered and, and all this kind of stuff. And what he's really getting at, I mean, it's it's this kind of blanket, okay, I don't like modern technological industrial civilization, but he's advocating for patience because he hates trains because they move people too quickly. Uh, and he says, if you want to understand proper politics, in my view, you have to be able to work out what your real relationship to your neighbor, not your interest, your real relationship to your neighbor is in, is in terms of duty, in terms of self-sacrifice, in terms of what you can give them as sacrifice and what they might give you as sacrifice that might not be based on some sort of, I pay my taxes so that you can have healthcare, this very kind of transactional thing, which is why he then focuses on things like cow protection, which Hindu nationalists are very, very keen about because the cow is holy in Hinduism. And of course, Muslims are perhaps slaughtering it at certain times for religious festivals. And he says, why are Hindus so hell bent on cow protection? I think the cow is holy as well, but I'm willing to give it up, even though I don't want to, in order that Muslims might then give up something for us. And what they might give up is asking for sort of excessive political safeguards or eventually asking for Pakistan. And this. So this is the kind of logic that's working in his head. And he thinks the village is the sort of place, I happen to think erroneously, he thinks historically that has worked that way. But nonetheless, you can see the sort of kind of avenue he's trying to push people down for Hindu-Muslim unity. And for him, it works in the caste system as well. I mean, again, I think even more erroneously that that if Brahmins sacrifice something for Dalits, which are the very lowest class, the so-called untouchables, then Dalits might assent to doing the menial work so that, you know, you know all this kind of stuff. And it just doesn't have truck with Muslims who are already in, in a particular political kind of mobilization. And by the late 20s and 30s, Dalits who have their own political leaders who are saying, whatever India is going to be, it cannot be a Brahmin-led sort of old school style caste democracy. We, we must do away with caste completely. So in, in some of those debates, Gandhi's a bit late to the party, if you want. And he's, he's playing catch up, particularly with the Dalits um, in the 30s. The 1920s were a time when they're having big eating events mm-hmm. where, where there would be people of all different castes, including the depressed castes, uh, uh, sitting down and eating food together. And, and this was considered very Gandhian. It's also the time of uh, Gandhi trying to get Hindu-Muslim unity with the Khilafat. Mm-hmm. Now, the Khilafat is uh, an Indianization of the term caliphate, The caliphate was the Ottoman emperor ruling over the holy places of Islam. And that was considered a a good thing. That was the way spiritual rule should should operate. The British, of course, had been fighting the Ottoman Empire. It It was being undermined from inside anyway. It was being modernized. However, Gandhi said that Hindus should support the caliphate. They should support this this aspiration about the ownership of the Muslim holy places and that Muslims should refrain from cow slaughter. But I think this is his philosophical anarchism as well, that actually, to some extent, he doesn't want a real world political state solution because he just wants the individual to try and make that type of politics happen because he thinks through doing that, you've sort of changed the way you look at your, your basic material interests and so on and your willingness to live with other people. Now, again, it doesn't work, but that right through to partition, I mean, I think that's what he's trying to do, this sort of... 
self-denial. You have no interest in the caliphate as a Hindu. Muslims have no interest in the cow as Muslims. But if you deny yourself this, maybe you'll come to a different type of political relationship with your your neighbor. And that's, that's what you know, fasting ends up being. It's what even sexual abstinence ends up being. It's all part of his kind of politics of denial to, to some extent. And I think actually in the 20s and 30s, it has some cachet. By the, by the 40s, no one's listening to him. You know, it's, it's kind of gone out the window. It's a very positive thing to think of, of something like fasting as politics of denial. Uh, the 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 people who surrounded him felt it was a kind of spiritual bullying. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 politicians also felt that here Gandhi is is fasting, for example, to stop untouchables having their own separate electorate. So this is part of the the British plan to move India towards democracy. And one of the ideas that there should be an electorate for the Muslims and and for the Hindus and, and one for for the untouchables and. Gandhi thinks this is outrageous. He thinks the untouchables are part of Hinduism, yeah. which Ambedkar, the, the untouchables leader, says the only way we're part of Hinduism is because you've excluded us from it. Yeah, <laughs> so no, precisely. Yeah. Uh, so, but Gandhi goes on a long fast to prevent this from happening. The Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald, is, is absolutely appalled that, that, that he should, but it clearly is forcing the government and in the end, even Ambedkar, the untouchables leader, has to go to Gandhi to say, stop, we'll withdraw our request for a separate electorate. Because the alternative is not that Gandhi dies, which, yeah, OK, that would have happened. But then there would have been riots and many, many thousands of untouchables would have been massacred. So that's that was what he was playing with. On, on, on oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think he's an idealist in the sense that he he thinks people will become mini Gandhi. He honestly thinks people will be be mini Gandhi's by this sort of thing. The other thing is he's a, he does see, genuinely see himself as a prophet. I mean, he you can see in his letters he he doesn't think anyone else is right and that that he's always. Uh, right about these sorts of issues. And the problem with being a prophet is you, you you can never be wrong, right? So as soon as you admit you might be wrong about something, you're no longer the prophet. But this is where, you know, where he says religion is politics and politics is religion. He, ha- he in a sense, has to play that role. Um, and I think this is the double-edged thing about Gandhi. If you want the mass mobilization, you've got to play the prophet. But with with playing the prophet comes all of these very, very problematic blind spots that that he has. But he 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 does think that he can overcome what he sees as sort of petty political competition by the the power of pure sort of duty and force of will, in a way, actually. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Did this sort of idea that he had about force of will make him a better spiritual than political leader? And is there anything else that we should say about his views of religion, of there being a religiously diverse India? The force of will is it's this kind of case where sometimes ideas are more important than what they can bring about on the ground, if that makes sense. So a lot of the really interesting recent research on, on Gandhi and actually Indian political thought more generally in the 30s and 40s is saying one of the problems with kind of Western liberal democracy is that from the liberal standpoint in the West, you're always waiting to pe- for people to be ready to be there, right? You need So even if you go back to John Stuart Mill and on representative government, he says, well, look, you need something that looks like a proto-nation to claim democracy for itself. And then you need individuals to be rational and, and kind of thoughtful and, you know, not full of petty prejudices and this kind of thing. What figures like Gandhi say, well, if you, if you wait for that, I mean, you'll be waiting forever, as indeed Churchill says, oh, well, give it another 50 years, give it another 50 years, give it another 50 years. What his philosophical anarchism does irrespective of whether you think you can realize mini Gandhians the world over, say, no, give it to us now because we have this moral force. We have this kind of spiritual power that actually has picked lots of holes in your way of doing things, whether it's the lawyer or the doctor and so on. And for him, the village is kind of like a proto-republic. Again, all sorts of questions about whether that makes sense in a 20th century world with nuclear weapons and, and international trade and you know marauding armies and that kind of thing. But he, he honestly thinks that, okay, if you can create the village republic and people who can behave honestly, dutifully, on each other's behalf as a, as a kind of collective politics, then there's no reason you can't have democracy in some form. He doesn't think it's parliamentary, but he does think of kind of village voting and, and what becomes called gram panchayat, so groupings of villages that can kind of handle their own affairs in a kind of, I mean, it's a kind of, I guess we call it anarcho-syndicalism these days. It's that, that kind of vibe. But you don't need to say that you need to be a proto-European rationalist individualist thinker who has an education, who can speak the language and so on and so forth. So most of these people are illiterate. So they just need to be able to show that they're moral in some way. And that's where Gandhian civil disobedience is doing a lot of work in terms of breaking people out of the thinking of colonialism, if you want, even if that's not the world that gets realized under Nehru and, and subsequent Indian governments. It's interesting how little he valued democracy, how little he was really interested in it. Because if you look uh, from, from the outside of what's happening in India, Government of India Act in 1919 and then Government of India Act in 1935, India is clearly moving towards democracy and there have been clearly previous efforts uh, to establish a rule of law back going back to the 19th century and equality before the law. They were not entirely, it it didn't always work, but it was there and it was an intention. The Congress Party started with its middle class, often Western educated characters, and then expanded and expanded. By the late 1920s, we've got Muslims who may be thinking about maybe we would be better off going on our own. They haven't said that yet, but that's certainly within the minds of some of them. There are Hindus, there's a number of other people of different faiths and interests, and they're all pulling in different directions. And Gandhi can unify them by being a form of prophet, by being a leader, someone who to some extent embodies India. And that looks very good on the platform. 
he says wonderful things and um, he gets people to spin cloth and saying, no, we shouldn't be buying Western cloth. And that does indeed hurt the British cotton industry, which is the intention. But also it it increases Mm self-reliance because he believes in this idea of the village life where people will, will spin their own cloth and make their own clothes and so on. So he's he's encouraging when he's encouraging that people to do that, then Congress loves him. Every part of Congress loves him. They all th- they all think this is wonderful. But as soon as he starts to make an, any specific claim, then he's being opposed on all sides. And I think this is most obvious in the uh, 1931 Roundtable talks, where he comes to London and their their government wants to discuss what independence is going to mean, what it's going to look like. He politically, while in India, manoeuvred the situation to such an extent that he said he would not go to London to join in these talks unless he was on his own. And so while all the politicking should have been taking place by people who were much better experienced at politics than, than, than he was, while all the backroom deals should have been done, while they should have been talking about other possibilities, constitutional possibilities, that wasn't happening. All that was happening was Gandhi would sit at the table and repeat in a somewhat monotonous tone exactly what his, his own views of spiritual life were, mm-hmm. which was actually no contribution to a, a constitutional con- conference at all. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I would completely agree with that. I mean, I think in insofar as constitutional discussions of the time are broadly with a small L framed in liberal terms, I mean, I think he thought they were evil, which is why as a prophet, he just keeps you know bleating away at you. Know, this is not how this should be should be done. I think the only thing I would sort of slightly push back against is, is it's not just him that thinks the two government of India acts are kind of a democratic farce. I mean, there's lots of people that think that this is the classic colonial thing of buying off the moderates because the property qualification is so narrow that you're you're just trying to buy off the middle class Indian groups who have been asking for representation for some time. And actually, many of them are doing well out of colonialism to to some extent, which I I think, again, he would say, well, is this not liberalism at work? Because you're doing the kind of you scratch my material back, I scratch yours. How can politics, which he sees as a moral activity, possibly be predicated on that type of rationality? So this is that, again, he's back to himself pure self-belief saying, oh, well, if I if I fast, if I do this, that and the other, I can bring this to an end. But he, by the 30s, he's certainly not not really capable of stopping that that juggernaut. And and the person we see as kind of, you know, in the pictures as his his best mate in some sense is Nehru, is absolutely convinced that you need a strong state, a strong parliament, a strong centre, you know, wants his kind of five-year plans and all this kind of thing. And he's an arch-materialist. I mean, he thinks that India can only be modernised through kind of really thoroughgoing social justice, redistribution, state-led industrialization, and so on. Nuclear power. You know, he's not, not a Gandhian in that sense at all. I mean, he pays lip service to, I mean, kind of what I was saying earlier about Gandhi kind of helping us rediscover our pride and our sense of history and so on, which is important. But when push comes to shove, particularly by the 40s, he's he's willing to let you know, kind of Gandhi go off on his own and take his vow of silence, which probably came as a bit of a blessing to Nehru at some point. We should get into some of his views on various things. Firstly, starting with partition, which you did sort of allude to just then. What were his views on partition? I mean, insofar as we've we've talked about his his absolute certainty that Hindu-Muslim unity was possible if you only got both sides to think about the issue in the right way as individuals, so duty and so on. We've talked about the Hindu side. I mean, he appreciates that jihad historically is often used as kind of an is an insurgent term, but he says if you look at what jihad is about, it's it's self-sacrifice in in the pursuit of a kind of political principle or a principle of justice. And if Muslims have that in their religion, as much as we have a, a himza and all those kinds of things of non-violence 
sense sort of sense of self-sacrifice and duty that they ought to be able to think in the same way as well and he never he never dissents from that view i mean by the 40s people would say that that was kind of maddeningly naive but he he honestly thinks that right to the very end he can he can stop partition from happening and in a lot of ways i mean partition for him kind of if it if it was successful as it well successful if it took place as it did it was almost the proof that he had been naive or wrong about all the things that Gandhianism could achieve beyond independence it's, itself. So for him, it's an absolute... I mean, he, he dies not just a disappointed man, I think probably a devastated man spiritually and, and, and morally, because he's, he's kind of shouting to the wind as far as he... Or not shouting because he's taken a vow of silence, as the case may be. And the last thing he does, you know, when he's shot dead, he's actually on his way to, to Pakistan to kind of go to mosques and temples and do sort of fasting and all that kind of stuff in an effort to kind of still bring this thing together to stop Hindu-Muslim violence and so on. So he never loses faith. But by that point, people have absolutely stopped really paying attention to what he's doing. He's become a sort of, by that point, a kind of you know, global icon in some ways, but he's not a political figure really anymore. I think it's it's the, the lack of interest in the details that Gandhi showed, that lack of interest in, for example, the cabinet mission, uh, the Quips mission, which goes in 1942 with the backing of, of Winston Churchill. And Churchill had been the arch enemy of Indian independence. So this is a major breakthrough. Churchill would send Stafford Cripps to India to say, they'll have a democracy, they'll have dominion status, we'll just have to work out the details. So that that was actually on offer that early. That was something that because of the form of the details, the way the different groups would be electing or the the way the country would be divided up in order to, to form big electoral chunks of the, the, the west, the centre and the east of the country, Gandhi opposed that. And I think that's, that's where he lost the chance of maintaining a united India. That sort of failure continued because once that had gone, Jinnah was saying, the leader of the, of the Muslims was saying, well, I lead the Muslims, you lead the Hindus. And as far as Jinnah was concerned, after that, it was a divided nation and they had to go hell for leather to get Pakistan, to have Pakistan carved out of India. There wasn't really much more hope of a, of a united India after independence. One of the other things that we talked about right at the start was sexual hypocrisy and accusations of that. How founded do you think those accusations are and how important are they to this story? I mean, if you're if you're being a kind of a traditional historian who takes their their method seriously and says, well, look, you ought to judge the past by the values of the people at the time and not impose your own. I mean, I have to say, I don't fully subscribe to that view of history. But it, many, many people, if not the majority of figures within the Congress Party, Nehru included, and so on, thought he was out of his mind <laughs> doing that and tried to get him to to stop. So clearly, even by the standards of his own time and his closest friends, he was he was way off in the realm of eccentricity on that sort of thing. I think for them, quite rightly, for, as, as political strategists, they didn't know what he was trying to achieve by it. So his point was that, look, if I can spend a, a night in bed alongside two younger women who are my nieces and so on, and not not even become sexually aroused, then what excuse does everyone else have for not being absent? It's, it's a bizarre thing to do. I mean, not least because they're family members, not least also because it, it doesn't really prove anything. I mean, it, has, it tends to take a very sort of strangely narrow view of what, what sex is and what sexuality is. I mean, he was instrumentalizing those young girls to, to make a political point, which I think we would say is, is very, very uh, unethical now, to say the least. And I think of all the things he's done, you can't fit it into a sort of 
well, look, his his opinion towards black South Africans at the time was within a certain intellectual framework he was working within that was broadly liberal and the British shared and other, most other Indians shared and so on. I think this was just off the wall crazy for most people at, at the time. And, and it, it's very difficult to to justify it in any sort of way, I think. The sex experiments didn't start with the girls, of course. No. He, he, he was doing this kind of thing when he was a cult leader in his ashrams and he would get women to try to stimulate him. He would say, I can resist whatever sexual inducement there is. And so he would get a woman to take her clothes off or to, to, to lie near him within an arm's reach, but not actually close up to him. So there are all sorts of different permutations. And while we might say this seems a bit distasteful, there, there was no shortage of women who wanted to, to join in, who wanted yeah. to help him in the things that he wished to do. And, and it was criticised, and it was also criticised that he just walked around a lot using women as what he called his walking sticks. So he'd have a couple of young women in front of him and he would have a hand on, on the shoulder of both of them. A lot of people in India felt that this was unacceptable. This wasn't a proper way of behaving, touching people in that way. And so when he started uh, going to bed with younger women, it didn't seem to matter that much when they were older women, like Sue Schiller, who was uh, his physician and uh, later his biographer. It didn't seem to matter much when she was 40-something. But when he, he started going to bed with 19-year-old and 18-year-old niece and adopted grandniece, that became very much criticised by people like uh, Kripalani, who was the Congress president. So it's an incredibly important person. You do not want to offend this man. But also a couple of people who worked with Gandhi, a couple of his uh, people who one of them was an editor of his newspaper and another one was his translator. They they resigned from his service because they said they didn't want to be involved in this. Several people working on his newspaper, the Harijan, said, we can't print this stuff because everything that I say and that I've reported comes from Gandhi directly or people he was communicating with. It's mainly in his collected works, all this stuff about the Muslims could be upon us at any time. We're going to have to sleep naked now, which he says he's in his 70s. He says this to, to a 19-year-old girl and who is, of course, in, in no position whatsoever to resist. That's, that's the prophet can never be wrong. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's the problem. And there's lots of, I mean, he thinks semen has sort of almost magical powers. He blames an earthquake in Bihar in the 20s, I think it was, on, on not having dealt with the issue of untouchability and, and God's punishment. So, I mean, there's these aspects of his thinking that I think are just off the wall crazy to, to people at the time. But you can see how there, there seems to be a coherence in his own thinking about self-denial is absolutely the thing that, I mean, famously, you know, I think another event that we haven't talked about that reads very, very strangely is the letters to Hitler about, okay, first, you know, uh, you're being an immoral man, please don't hurt the Jews kind of thing, as if Hitler would, you know, <laughs> take that seriously, not least coming from a brown person. But then Gandhi later says, well, look, if the, if the Jews practice civil disobedience, yes, a great many of them may well have died, but they probably would have convinced the Germans of the error of their ways and, and all that kind of stuff. And therefore, which, you know, one, I don't think it would have. And two, it's rather missing the point that that several million people have to die in order to to do this. But I mean, he would he would say that about India when people said, "Well, why don't you want India to have a standing army after independence?" He said, "Well, if someone invades, we'll just practice civil disobedience, and many of us will die, but we'll be truthful and just in our in our death." So I mean, there's there's lots of detractors on these issues at the time, and it, and it goes to show that you know he's yes, he's a popular figure on one level, but he's people are always looking at him a bit strangely and going, you know, if we could compartmentalize this side of your your action and your thought, that would be handy and, and just ignore the rest. And sometimes he just doesn't see it. I mean, I think he thinks he can bring the whole nation with him purely through 
fasting and so on. I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to go back to where you, you were talking about the Jews and his mm-hmm. attitude towards the Holocaust, because I, I think it's a central issue and a central yeah. failing in Gandhi's ideology. And of course, he knew a lot of Jews very well mm-hmm. because his, his earliest supporters, people like Polak and Kallenbach and Schlesin, were Jewish and were reporting to him. Kallenbach's reporting back mm-hmm. to him on what's, what's happening in Germany he, and, and, and actually visits him to say, look, you've got to speak up about this. So there's no defense of mm-hmm. ignorance that the, the Japanese atrocities in Nanking, the uh, Armenian massacres in the First World War, he never gets to grip with any of those things. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's a failure to confront radical evil. He sees individuals and the possibility mm-hmm. of individual change, and certainly change within himself. But when confronted with some massive act of violence, he is impotent. No, absolutely. And I think part of his genius and part of his his kind of foolishness, I think, but flip sides of the same coin, is that his strategy works incredibly well for a liberal setup, right? So someone who's not going to, for the most part, just shoot you in the head for, for sedition, they're going to try you. There's all sorts of laws about censorship. There's laws around, you know, the salt monopoly, famously, which he launches a, a, a Satyagraha, a civil disobedience campaign against, forcing a liberal regime to kind of compromise with you or, or roll back before they they kind of murder you all. Not going to work with the Nazis. There's not, nothing to do civil disobedience against. And I think that's the problem. Gandhi, he wants to be a global figure, but actually where his strategy works, is actually in very particular liberal British circumstances. And you find the people that adopt his strategy later on, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, they're using civil disobedience against a very similar regime. It's not one that will arbitrarily, for the most part, shoot you. I mean, apartheid's slightly different. Yeah, Mandela back to South Africa, because of of, of course, Mandela took inspiration from, from Gandhi. And at the beginning of the African National Congress, they certainly were talking about civil yeah. disobedience and, and they were talking about just discussion. But the leaders of apartheid South Africa just would truck no discussion. But with Martin Luther King, who actually said he went to India as a pilgrim, he, uh, he went there looking for, for evidence of Gandhi. He, he, when he first learned about Gandhi, he went to, the, went to a bookshop and bought everything mm-hmm. he possibly could. He read everything about Gandhi. I mean, he was so inspired. And again, as you say, he is working, Martin Luther King is, is working in a place where there is the rule of law. Even if it's state by state, the law is manipulated against the black population. Overall, in the United States, there is a rule of law and there is a free press. That was at that time, there's free press. And there were a lot of people in states which weren't segregationist states, a lot of white and other people who were saying, you've got to have civil liberties. And Mm so it's... I shouldn't say it's easy to be Gandhian, <laughs> but it's possible to be Gandhian under those circumstances. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But but if you, if you're if you're in a place where they're going to lock you up and throw away the key just just for making a protest, then Gandhi's philosophy doesn't help. It you does at work. All. No, absolutely. And I think this is the 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 Dalit untouchable sort of criticism of it as well that you're you're not going to civil disobedience your way out of Brahmin dominance because that they simply do not see you as someone who who ought to be. You're worthy of of kind of any sort of recognition as a human being to some extent, and and what you get in India when when an untouchable you know in a, in a conservative part of the country tries to assert their rights, they're simply lynched. You know, that's the sort of thing that happens. You can't protest your way out of that, really. So yeah, this is where he he kind of falls down. I think he's very clever at dealing with a liberal setup, but but actually quite quite sort of blind to the fact it's not going to work everywhere else. So another issue that's much debated about Gandhi, and we have talked a little bit around this sort of idea, are accusations of racism. What is your view on 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 those debates? 
I think he's, he's definitely prejudicial in his, his South African period to black Africans. I think um, it depends whether you want to use the word racism, because if you're thinking of racism of the late 19th century as kind of fundamental biological difference in that kind of eugenics bordering on Nazi, and indeed bordering on a lot of British views at the time about these people are not quite human, and they're, therefore they're never going to match up. I don't think he's quite there. Does he believe in a civilizational hierarchy, which sometimes ends in pretty much the same political results as biological racism? So yeah, I think that's one thing that you have to say. He, he tends to view Indians, and, and actually from what we could tell, certain Indians of certain caste groups as more capable of the type of politics that he's interested in. He respected an Englishman, an educated Englishman, and that was the sort of person that he could really get on with, someone who understood his humor, who understood his language, he did not respect black Africans. He, d he definitely saw them as a, a different category of, of humanity. To sort of start to draw this story together, you mentioned at the start the fact that by the end of his life, he'd become somewhat marginalised, although he had also become this global icon, which is a strange sort of uh, juxtaposition. If we were to try to trace points during his lifetime where he was particularly well thought of and particularly badly thought of, I suppose, what might that look like on a graph? I mean, it's a difficult thing to do because it's it's who is it that's thinking well and badly of him. So I think there's always people who think very, very well of him. And there's always people who think think badly of him or think he's a bit off the wall. I mean, there's certainly Hindu conservatives. You know, this is what I was saying about him having a particular radical position on Hinduism. He doesn't really view it as a kind of I'm just sort of uh, recovering the, the kind of monolithic history of Hinduism and giving it back to you. He says, well, I've look, I've delved into certain texts like the Bhagavad Gita. I've obsessed about the village to a certain extent. There are things in Hinduism which I think are really useful for becoming the type of political figure I think all individuals should be. And then there's people in, you know, because Hinduism's hugely, hugely diverse faith, people from Bengal, even people from Gujarat who go, I just don't understand what, what this Hinduism you're talking about is. And you're and, and certainly insofar as you're willing to share a bed with family members and so on. So in that sense, he's kind of always in favor and out of favor with with certain constituencies. I think in terms of politics, he has a period of sort of, you know, after the 1922 uh, non-cooperation movement, which he himself calls off because it, it starts to get violent. He goes to prison for a bit. So he's off the, the scene for two years after he's forced to kind of rebuild his credibility. So he sends Congress leaders to the villages to kind of learn about village life and that sort of thing. And it's not until the early 30s where you get big civil disobedience movements again. So I, that would be a kind of ebb in the in the politics. And I would say by after the Quit India movement, once it's clear that the British are leaving, he's got nothing more to add tactically to a lot of political discussions, as we said before, which is why he then attempts to kind of recapture some ground by taking vows of silence, fasting, all this kind of stuff. What I will say is he does stop kind of sporadic instances of Hindu-Muslim violence. So he goes on a fast in Calcutta, which stops the violence and so on. So he's doing, you know, he's doing his bit, but he's certainly not the big kind of political mover and shaker that, that he used to be. I see the high point as being 1930, the march to Dandy. He's, he's in his ashram and he says, well, what am I going to do to reinvigorate uh, the, the independence movement? And he, he thinks for a long time and says the salt tax. And the salt tax is really very petty. It doesn't, uh, the, the, the British aren't very interested in it. Other Congress leaders think no, there's no point in worrying about this. This is, this is hardly a great imposition. Gandhi realizes that salt in a hot country like India, salt is very necessary, particularly for the poorest. And when the government takes a percentage of the sales, government had a monopoly on, on salt production and sale, then the government is affecting the welfare of all of those poorer Indians, all of them. 
And that was the issue that he chose. And so he said, I'm going to make salt. And this is illegal. And again, it's an absurdity that, that it should be illegal to pick up salt from the salt plains in, in your own country. So it's one absurdity piled on another. And what Gandhi says is, I will walk to Dandy and, and, I, I, and I will, when I get there, I will make salt. And so he has a, a really long period. I think it's 20 days. He's, he's walking and gathering followers as he goes. And of course, gathering the world's media and finally gets to the coast and picks up some salt and encourages lots of other people to disobey the government by making salt and distributing it. I think of probably a rather questionable quality, <laughs> this salt, but, but it happens. It, it's, it's, it's tremendously important symbolically, and it's this time that uh, Time magazine makes him the man of the year on their cover, for example, realising that, that he really has made a major change. And I think the low... I have to agree with Vic that Lowe is um, uh, just before partition, in fact, I, th I think. There, there's a, a meeting of Congress leaders and he's there and they're quite clearly moving into how the elections are going to take place, what's going to happen and, and so on. And, and someone says, uh, do we need to detain Bapu any longer? That's the familiar name they use for him. And no one says anything. No, we don't. And, and he just leaves. And he's literally sidelined. He's out of the door because now it's serious politics. This is the big boys and, and we don't need you anymore. The Quit India movement's very interesting because he, he says, OK, well, let's do a mass kind of civil disobedience movement in the middle of the war, taking advantage of the British situation and so on. And he's immediately arrested along with a set of Congress re leaders. Interestingly, what happens, though, is unlike the previous occasions where once the Congress leaders and their lieutenants are arrested, you tend to get the dissipation of the movement because the leadership's gone. The Quit India movement just absolutely erupts on this kind of huge scale. And rather than doing what he does in 1922, perhaps because he knows influence has kind of run away from him, saying, let's call it off, because it turns very violent. He says, you know, that's typically kind of cryptic phrase, uh, let the British leave India to us or let them leave it to God, which is, i.e., it's a free-for-all. And, and what happens, it's not really Gandhianism. I mean, you've got people blowing up railway lines, you've got communist insurgents, you've got people sort of what we would call acts of terrorism against the state and that kind of thing. And he's totally fine with it because he knows it's, it's literally, he says it's now or never. So in that sense, it's not Gandhianism and his uh, ideology that's having much influence. It's literally him as an icon. He's the person who's able to light the fuse and then says, well, let the thing run its, run its course. But it's not Gandhianism that's, that's at work there. It's, it's all those kind of different movements that have coalesced into a historical moment where it looks like the British might be you know, on the verge of collapse because the, the Japanese have, have kind of routed them from Singapore and places and Indians are just taking advantage of it. So it's, it's a, it is a Gandhian movement, but curiously, it's, it's not a Gandhian moment. In, in, in way. I mean, he could spin it as a big failure for his, his principles in lots of ways but it seems to do the trick. And the British all say, but all say that there's lots of reports saying we haven't been this afraid since the 1857 mutiny, which was the, the, the last large-scale violent uprising against, against British rule. So it seems to have the desired effect to, to some extent. He, he was presented with, with the facts uh, about uh, what will happen after the partition. What, 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 if, if we just go, if the British just leave, what, what, what do you think happens then? And he says, oh, there'll be a couple of days when a few heads will be knocked in. But, but then uh, because we haven't been allowed arms, the violence won't be severe uh, and, and, uh, and then everything will calm down. And he genuinely believed that there, there would be a churning of, of the nation and out of that would come goodness. And of course, what, what actually happened in partition was because people didn't have arms. They were attacking each other with farm implements and, and, and the, the, the horrible wounds and, and uh, of course, massacres in the, the, the most 
terrifying level of, of, of violence. I think it's worth saying that there are Muslims, who, not many of them, admittedly, but there are Muslim Gandhians. So Maulana Azad, who's a big figure in the Congress, is, is always, is curiously, I mean, he, he doesn't want partition, even though he's a very orthodox Muslim, is a Gandhian in that he does believe that Muslims have it in them to sacrifice on each, other, on each other's behalf. So there are Muslim leaders, not many of them, but there are Muslim leaders who seem to still share this kind of very idealistic vision of, of what post-independence South Asia could be. You mentioned there the complexity of trying to trace, even in his own lifetime, how he was regarded and received. So I suspect this is, if anything, more complicated. Do we get a sense of how he is now regarded and how that varies across nation, across religion? Is it possible to sort of condense how he's viewed? It's, I mean, we could talk about the global. I think for South Asia, it's, it's come at a very, this discussion's come at a time where he's fairly out of favor. So, I mean, there are films now valorizing his assassination and people, I mean, I was in Gujarat some years ago now where they showed a film about Nataram Godse assassinating Gandhi and people in the theater stood up and clapped. So, I mean, it was really that level of kind of, now Gujarat's a, a state that's been in the throes of Hindu nationalism for, for some time. So perhaps not, not a kind of typical case study, but certainly insofar as they see him as somehow acquiescing to what, what people call the vivisection of of India because as a kind of sacred geography the Hindu nationalists he kind of his sense gave it away through his his not willingness to to be violent against Muslims really there is that level of of hostility to him even though on the surface the the ruling party in India will always you know when it's his birthday and so so forth commemorate it but what they tend to do is gather all of his intellectual enemies and commemorate them as well and say well look <laughs> make up your mind about who we like and who we who we don't like that being said I mean any kind of not even uh, sort of radical protest organizations in India. But in the cut and thrust of, of Indian civil society, if, you, if you're an environmentalist in India or protesting against a company that's been giving mining rights and so on, the, the standard form of political protest or even for trade unions in India has been forms of civil disobedience. So in India, I would say, you know, that's his kind of double, double-sided legacy. I have to say, I mean, in terms of whether he's worthy of blaming for partition, I'm not sure. I mean, I tend not to, the, the violence aside, I tend not to view partition as something that you can assign too much blame for because the people who commit the violence, it's a civil war, right? People pick up arms and they murder each other. There's an element of instigation from from extremists on either side, but it, it, it's a bit like who you're going to blame for the English civil war, right? I mean, it's it becomes quite complicated. So th- there's that side of it. I wouldn't want to blame him as a, as a, a single person. Of course, he could have advocated for more, more kind of military safeguards and that kind of thing. The other issue is, you know, if India had remained together as a state, a kind of conglomerate confederate state or whatever with with very very kind of loose federal system for 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 muslims and hindus it would have looked unlike any other state on the planet because i mean the muslims are a minority in a very superficial sense i mean in to what extent can you call hundreds of millions of people who at one point ruled the subcontinent have a culture of equal weight to hindus and so on uh, demographically be called a minority there's a, an emerging historiography now that says for all of the horror of that you know the violence of that period there's no way really that these states could govern themselves under liberal democratic norms without real minorities being created in both sides. So Muslims are now, you know, around about 10 to 14% of the Indian population and so on. It, they constitute what we would recognize as a minority. So again, it's, it's, it, it depends, the, the, not to get too historian on you, but the type of research questions you want to ask, maybe assigning blame is not the most productive way of looking at that period in history, but understanding what the alternatives were, whether they would have worked. And if you are going to have a, a modern style nation state, where the partition was just really the only way way forward. Well, Naturam Godsi, as, as you say, is is a, a national hero now, yeah. which is is a surprise to those of us who grew up in the, the 60s and 70s, thinking of Gandhi as as, as, as the, the great lost leader. Godsi 
killed Gandhi, knowing, of course, that he was going to be arrested and tried for his life, and knowing also that, that under the court system, he was going to have a right to give his defense and to say why he did it. And so he spoke for five hours saying exactly why he'd killed Gandhi. And of course, it's, it's to do with the partition of India. He thought Gandhi gave too much to the Muslims and that Gandhi's view of Hinduism, he accepted, yes, Gandhi's a Hindu reformer, he's reforming Hinduism in the wrong direction, Godsey thought, and that what he wanted was more aggression, more violence, more authority. In terms of the world character, uh, Gandhi has been influential in uh, civil rights movements in the United States and in Latin America, and I think also in, in Russia, People making protests in Russia, protests about the current war, for example, they're not inspired by some kind of a socialist background or, or even a, a conservative one. They're, they're, they're looking towards something more deeply spiritual. Yeah, no, I think I would agree with that. I think the, the sort of strategic side of civil disobedience has is, is actually been hugely influential as a, as a 20th century and early 20th century grassroots politics. I think the rest of him, I mean, I, I don't think we've moved beyond the Richard Attenborough film, to be honest. I think that's the the sort of Gandhi a lot of people outside of Africa probably view. I mean, there's been some critical views of him in Africa recently, as we've we've talked about. And I, what I dislike, I mean, I, I remember watching that film as a child. So I mean, I don't, it's, a, it's a great piece of cinema, but you do get the, this, what I call the Santa Clausification of, of Gandhi, you know, the man who, at the moment he discovers his morality, is actually pretty consistent throughout the rest of the film. And he appears in the way that he advocates his nonviolence more, as I was saying earlier, like a Quaker or a, a pacifist, rather than, I think, the nuts and bolts of what makes his nonviolence and satyagraha tick. So this this business, but you know, there's no real sexual content in it at all. What I would say is, I think one of the things. I mean, this is perhaps a bit more of a global academic argument than popular culture, but he's kind of being recovered in political philosophy departments, not just history departments in the US and here as a as a kind of a political thinker in his own right, not a spiritual thinker or just an anti-colonial thinker. So there's all sorts of work on kind of Gandhian realism that, for all of its spiritual content, is this a way of bringing people to the table that's quite effective and it constrains the worst excesses of politics if you can can do this kind of restrained and nonviolent politics and that kind of thing. There's some more spurious ones that I don't agree with. So there's, there's ones that compare Gandhi to the Stoicist tradition, which doesn't make a huge degree of sense to me. But you can see where he's being fit in with kind of the broader canon of, of political thinking and, and not just the kind of you know half-naked fakir, as, as Churchill would have called him. He's a, he's a serious kind of uh, meaty thinker in his own right. Yeah, I think it's important to, to remember what Gandhi represented to political thinkers in the 1930s and then the 40s at a time when fascism and communism were thought to be the only alternatives. Mm -hmm. Here was Gandhi offering something else. Yeah. Certainly for them, standing between these two giant horrors... Gandhi was a way out. The figure who's emerged through this conversation is multifaceted and complex in ways that, as we've discussed, goes far beyond the sort of flattened image of, of this individual. Very briefly, how do you think he might be seen in 50 years' time if you were able to sort of predict? I think from the point of view of things like, I mean, this is an idealistic view of the future, but say environmental protest and uh, political protest against racism and that kind of thing works which I hope it does, I think his strategy will will continue to be regarded as a, a very new and important way of doing politics. I, it's a 20th century way of doing politics that's, that's largely different from anything in history um, as, a, as an act of mass mobilization. I think it's, it's democratic. You know, you don't need to read set texts on politics to be a part of it, which is really important. And I hope that side of him gets remembered. The rest of it, I think, actually will probably become less and less 
important. So if caste uplift in India becomes a, well, it, it is a serious thing, but I think, you know, if, if Indian democracy can work its way to actually doing caste uplift properly, I, I don't think Gandhi is going to be at the heart of those debates in any any sort of meaningful way. I, I think he'll always be remembered for nonviolence and for uh, civil civil disobedience. And particularly, I think, as in, in the way the world is, is developing now, there's going to be more civil disobedience, uh, people involved in, in, in Just Stop Oil and similar kinds of, kinds of movements are looking at the primacy of the individual conscience, which is what Gandhi says, I, whatever it costs, I must do something because there is some great evil taking place. And so Gandhi will take action, even if it will destroy him. And that's what the uh, climate protesters uh, are saying also. And I think they, they take in inspiration from, from Gandhi. And I can see that becoming more important as the decades roll on from now. That was Vikram Vazana in conversation with Jad Adams, talking to me, Matt Elton. And don't forget, you can hear more episodes in this series by heading to historyextra.com forward slash great hyphen reputations. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.